Welcome to episode 75, Left to Our Own Devices, helping clients with healthier device management and good digital citizenship. Featuring Dr. Dawn Grant, Certified Chemical Dependency Counselor. By Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Dr. Don Grant, and we're going to be talking about how to work with clients around their social media consumption. Dr. Grant is a media psychologist. He's also a researcher and addiction specialist. He is also the chairman of the American Psychological Association's Device Management and Intelligence Committee. Um, hi, Don. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Beth. Thank you so much for having me. Um, there's so much that we could say about social media, uh, but why don't we start by you sharing a little bit about your background and how you came to have this focus on technology and social media? Sure. And I just love that you said there's so much to talk about because, you know, isn't it just about posting? Because if we don't post it, it never happened, right? I mean, that's the idea now. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So in terms of social media, I just want to make it really clear to everybody because, you know, I'm very fortunate. I get to talk and uh, do presentations and educate and train clinicians. But what I want to put the umbrella over all of it, because some people aren't sure, I am all about technology and devices and, you know, and social media. Uh, I use it, of course. But, um, you know, in terms of the use and utilization, it's about really staying connected and being able to, you know, see friends. I have friends and family all over the world. So I just want to make it clear to everybody, including your audience, that I'm not here to say, oh, it's all bad, because it's not. It's just really, I, as you said, and it was really kind of APA to, to create this committee for me. Uh, I teach healthy device management and the practice of good digital citizenship. And what we're talking about today can fall under that as well. Uh, and in, interestingly enough, and thank you for asking, people always say to me, you know, Don, how, how did you get into this? Because I'm what's called a digital immigrant, which means that I was not uh, born into the world of, of that we live in today. Um, I'm a Gen Xer, so computers and social media and all these things came later. But I'm the father of the first generations of digital natives. So my own children don't know a world without it. And so certainly the social media platforms are things that are, have just always been a part of their lives. And the way that this all happened and I got into this was actually because of one of my children. Uh, so in 2008, um, something came out called the iPhone. And as a father, I, you know, really saw that there was this thing out, but my daughter wanted it. And of course, because I'm not going to lie, she's got me wrapped around her finger. I thought, okay. And so I got her an iPhone and then something happened. And what we know now and what I know now, based on my research and based on my, uh, you know, work over the last 11 years, what happened was a very, very subtle but significant form of cyberbullying. And all that it was, Beth, was that she was left out of a photo of a group of girls that she thought were her BFFs. And I realized very quickly because of the reaction and response and how much that, say, upset her, that, oh, snap, I may have done something that I need to review. And what I mean by that is, I'd handed her something that I didn't understand and she was playing with it and I needed to understand it because I realized I might've handed her something that could harm her. Uh, you wouldn't give your kid a set of power tools. I don't think it just got to say I've had it, but I didn't know. We didn't know it was all new. And, you know, so um, that's how this all started because honestly, I was just trying to be a good dad. I needed to understand this thing that my kid had that, that people were starting to get. And I needed to make sure that it was something that was safe. So. That's kind of how this all started. And here I am 11 years later. And, you know, I've been researching and publishing and devising strategies and skills. And now I get to very, very fortunate and grateful that I get to um, talk all over the world now. And I want to address the adults, too, because I work with all populations. Um, you know, I am also the executive director of Resolutions Teen Center in Santa Monica. And we're our an outpatient program and a treatment program for uh, teens um, for mental health and um, and I also treat device management there, but I also have a private practice and also work with adults. So it's important that we all realize it. And in that in that program, I work with the kids, but I also have a parent group and I teach healthy family device management and also teach for the parents. And it's interesting because the parents come in and <laughs> it's adorable. They all 
want me to tell them all the best filters and all the ways and the things, some of the things we're going to talk about, signs and symptoms. But I also talk to the parents about modeling their own behavior because we all are caught up in it. And, you know, so that's important as well. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I can hear kind of the personal connection. And I think for a lot of us, uh, particularly for parents, it is kind of a scary thing to not know what uh, what world our children and adolescents are growing up in because it's so much different than what we were exposed to. Um, so tell me, just starting with social media, given your research base and your knowledge, what are some important statistics relating to social media use among both teenagers and adults? So depression and anxiety were stabilized for decades and certainly self-harm and the worst, which is suicide, which one is too many. All of this is bad, but they were stabilized. And then in 2012, we started to see a really, really um, disconcerting uptick that was very significant in terms of these these uh, issues and we tried to figure out why and there's a lot of variables and you know we're trying to figure out and really isolate which ones but i personally am working on and believe that um in terms of social media and all of this uh so 2012 we start to see this and in 2011 snapchat and instagram so I am pretty convinced just myself that there at least is a causal correlation. But I think that anybody who uses social media, I think that we all have, um, you know, been uh, affected. And some of it's great. Like I said, I'm not trying to demonize it, but some of the statistics. So a 2018 study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association tracked 2,500 non-ADHD meaning they did not have ADHD symptomatically. And they looked at 10th graders and they followed them for two years. And they found a significant association between a higher frequency of modern digital media use and subsequent symptoms of ADHD over a 24-month follow-up. Now, in terms of what we're talking about, the study concluded that those most likely addicted to social media were 53% more likely to develop ADHD symptoms they had never before demonstrated. Um, now, when we say addicted to social media, again, addiction, and I'm not going to say you know what that is because it's not even in the DSM-5, uh, but it's just basically saying that it's suggesting that the more you use social media, that ADHD has been somehow linked to it. Uh, anxiety and depression, as I said, has been on the rise since 2012, and that's not just for high school kids. It's also across young adults, and even there's some studies about adults. But in terms of also the kids, According to the National Institute of Mental Health, 30% of girls and 20% of boys, that's 6.3 million teens in this country, have had an anxiety disorder. Again, we're looking at statistics, and we can basically you know, say that we believe that that's underreported. So why is it caused? What's causing it? Well, again, I don't know, but I really look at social media because a lot of the things that we all do with social media, I call it compare and despair. And we'll talk about that later. Um, a study released by YouGov, which is part of the National Institutes of Health in July of this year. <laughs> and this is crazy because it's all about connection, right? And social media and friends or followers. It reports that 30% of millennials, millennials include also young adults, they admit that they always or often feel lonely. 22% claim they have no friends. 27% claim no close friends. And 30% say they have no best friend. Now, how is this possible in social media when we have so many friends? It's, you know, it's, it's wondering about that. Uh, so there's a lot of stats like this. And the stats on teen suicide are really, to me, the most um, frightening, quite frankly, because according to a report from the Centers for Disease Control published in October of this year, each day in the United States, there's an average of over 3,069 suicide attempts by young people in grades 9 to 12. Now, why? I mean, again, there's a lot of variables, but I we're talking about social media, and I'm not going to say that that's the cause, but we can talk about some of the things about it, because also, what they said is four out of five teens who attempt suicide have given clear warning signs. Uh, a study of pediatric hospitals also released in October basically backed up that, that, uh, that data. And we know that these stats are understated due to reporting, about the reporting. 
So in your mind, it seems like there's this pretty clear correlation between social media use and the worsening of public mental health. Well, I, again, <laughs> because I am a researcher, because I really want to make sure that the data and what I say is legitimate, um, we're looking at it. It's so nascent. I mean, social media is relatively you know, new to us in terms of just life. Uh, but we're looking at it, we're researching it. I'm working on some research right now because one of the things that's really um, significant to me in terms of investigation, and I talk to clinicians and I talk to parents about this, is this issue of cyberbullying. And that's a, a topic where it's very subtle, it can be very subtle, but we are looking at that because really we're looking at uh, what, what could be causing these kids to have so much anxiety? And again, there's a lot of pressure on them and on all of us. I mean, we have access now to all sorts of information, but certainly in terms of the kids, the pressure on them, whether it's real or perceived to when, whether something's really perceived, it still is real until we really do some reality versus perception testing. And we really look at it. But the idea that we have all of these, um, you know, social media platforms and you have your own kind of pages these are self-curated. So the authenticity of what someone is posting, and I, look, I'm supposed to know about this and I can still fall victim to it. Um, <laughs> you know, I see other people's lives on social media and they just look awesome. I mean, they're traveling, they're going to all these places, they're doing all these, and I'm sitting here working and reading and researching and I'm thinking, wow, you know, my life, I maybe need to look at that. Now, whether or not it's real or not, and I'll just tell you that one of the things that's important to me, and again, the um, American Psychological Association has been so supportive of my work, even when I wasn't sure all these years if anybody even cared about it. But uh, they were um, really supportive in a tremendous way, and they had commissioned me. They've commissioned me to write the only book on this topic they're going to publish. Now, it's great. I mean, it's amazing. Um, it's going to be a book that um, will discuss all of the things we're talking about today and a lot more. But the way that I was told that they even offered this to me was that someone who is also supportive of my work had showed someone at APA a slide of a presentation I had done in London. And someone saw it and said, hey, uh, we want to talk th to this person. And the slide was talking about social media. And it said, do you contemplate the affect or effect your posts might have before posting them? And what is your real motive? goal or need for posting, sharing, liking, and or friending or not. And what I meant by that slide was that I have friends IRL, as the kids say in real life, and they know what I'm doing. They know what's going on with me. I share with them. So I was just putting out a question to the audience. When you think about it and you don't have to tell us, what is your real motivation for posting anything? And I'm not saying that it's bad. It could be great. But I wonder about that. And that made the American Psychological Association uh, take an interest in talking to me more. So in terms of social media and in terms of how I'm seeing, you know, how it can really affect our sense of self, how it can influence us, and then also how it can make us, you know, maybe dysregulated. Uh, that was really what I was interested in. Thank you for sharing even just that idea of what are we trying to accomplish through social media? Um, share a little bit, please, about what social media use does in the brain in terms of, you know, the quote unquote reward system and things like that. Sure. Of course. Let's talk about that. So, okay. So there's a lot of things that can happen. And the first piece, if we're talking about, uh, you know, how it affects you, um, so there's something, and uh, I can talk about this a little bit, um, the piece about it that's really important as well to know, and I, and I talk to the, my clients about this, and I just, I'm trying to educate them. And the people who develop these platforms, the people who design them, they did it purposely because the goal was to keep us engaged on the screen as long as possible, right? And so they, they use something called the variable rewards system. And the variable rewards is the same thing that they use, for example, for slot machines. So you pull a lever and you don't know what you're going to get. And so it's going to affect you in some way. So the push to refresh, if you think about it and you imagine it, it is about as close as you can come because they can't have a lever on a device, right? So in terms of that, in social media, 
the first thing it's going to do is say that you post something. Let's talk about when you are the user and you post. Well, obviously, if you post something, again, as the slide that I talked about suggests, we're looking for something, right? So I don't know what it is, but what is going to happen next? What's going to happen next is we are going to be anticipatory, waiting for the response of this unknown audience. And it depends how many, you know, friends, followers, whatever you have, you know, so you're going to wait, right? I mean, that makes sense that, that you want to know the reaction. So a lot of things happen in the brain. The first thing that happens is for some people, when they post it, there could be a little bit of cortisol or adrenaline running through wondering what's going to be the reaction or response. So stress or, or excitement or fear, whatever it is, wondering how's it going to be received. That will continue depending upon how your post is received because we're very interested if we post, you know, that's the goal. What, how do people react or respond? The other thing is if you start to get some really nice affirmations on it, then of course, dopamine is going to hit, which is dopamine is a, is really good. We all want it. Uh, and it makes us feel good and it's a pleasure. You know, it, it feels nice. We're going to want it again. So we're going to keep refreshing, refreshing, refreshing because we want to get more of that because the way that the dopamine works in your limbic system is that it's going to recondition you. It's a lot of how addiction works. Um, so that's something that can happen. But then the other thing that happens in terms of when you post or when you are the user, but my question is that I pose to people I work with, okay, so at what point is it enough? So are you going to keep checking? Are you going to keep checking? And if you have something that's spinning in the, in your head that you know that you have put something out there for the world to judge, the world meaning whoever you're connected to on social media, that's going to be sitting there and you're going to, you know, it's going to have some place in your mind, unless you're the type of person who just posts stuff and just moves on, which again, why are you posting? So, but if you don't get the response or you're waiting for a certain response, or you have some kind of agenda of why you're posting it because you're trying to utilize social media or leverage it in a way to get a reaction or response from a certain individual, which people do. Then you start to, again, you start to maybe get a little dysregulated. You start to get a little anxious. Cortisol starts running. Adrenaline starts running. You wonder if you post it correctly. Or let's go to the other piece. If you post something, and someone comments on it or doesn't like it or starts to get into one of these threads that some of us have seen where they start, you know, um, challenging it. Well, obviously, that's not going to feel great. And then you're in the place in the placement where you're wondering what to do about it, stressing you out. You're wondering who else saw it. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. Um it sounds like the use of social media just basically kind of hijacks our brain and we have this desire to get the hit, get the reinforcement, the social reinforcement since we're social creatures and it can go haywire. And I think your question about when is enough enough is a really valid point to make. Well, there's also another thing, and this has been you know, evidenced in several studies, that there is a, there is a reverse correlation between the amount of engagement and in other words for people who want to understand what i mean um the the more you post on social media let's just say there's a correlation that's reverse between your self-esteem and ego strength and that amount what it means is that su the suggestion of these research studies is that the more you post on social media is an indicator of a lower sense of ego strength and self-esteem. So people who post very prolifically, um, that's something also to maybe ask clients about or ask even if you have your, your kids, if you know this, if you have access to it, um, the more engagement is reverse correlated. And that is important as well. But the problem with that is that the saturation level, because the problem is, so for saying, and it's been evidence that the more you post or the more you engage on social media has been suggested as an indicator of a lower sense of self-esteem and ego strength. That's a, that's the piece. But also people who post a lot, they are oversaturating and they're probably not going to get the kind of affirmations that they want if they had posted less. For example, say that I do 10 posts in one day. 
then if I'd only posted once, then maybe everyone will have, you know, posted on that and really, really liked it or affirmed it or hearted it or whatever. But if I posted 10 times, then there's going to be a distribution level that's going to be a little entropic, meaning that people are, might not, you know, they might get tired of it. And that also is something, and I've talked to my clients about that, about, you know, so they're saying, oh, you know, my first post got X amount of whatever. And then, well, look at why, because you're just oversaturated. And I also just wanted to share when we're talking about that now the developers and the uh, the people who are behind all of this um, are now coming forward, a lot of them. And you may have seen some of this or your audience may have seen some of this uh, in maybe some of their feeds or some of their news uh, that they watch. So it's kind of reminds me of when the tobacco industry started to um, become more exposed. And so the developers and designers are starting to talk about and expose some of the psychological factors that they purposely put in to keep us engaged. But I'm just going to share on this piece when we're talking about affirmations and how really the goal is that for a lot of people on social media, uh, Justin Rosenstein and his colleague, Leah Perlman, they invented the granddaddy, grandmother, grand they, whatever you want to say, whatever, however you want to frame it, of the like feature on Facebook. So that was really the first one, that like feature that has now evolved and has a lot of progeny in terms of, you know, other platforms that use similar. They invented it and they have both disengaged the feature and said, we, we think we made a mistake here because this is just regulating us and they invented it. There was also a thing that some of your listeners may have seen about a couple of months ago that um, Facebook, uh, which also owns Instagram, has done beta testing on this. And <laughs> even among the people that I know and my clients and, and some, some of my friends, there was a lot of feelings about this. They tried, they, they realize it. And so they try to help a little bit and maybe cauterize some of the negative aspects of that feature. So they proposed and beta tested to hide from the public or from your friends or your followers the number of affirmations. Now, what they did and what they've done is that the person who is the poster, so if I post something, I will still see how many people liked it, how many people reacted, responded to it. But if you're one of my friends or you're one of my connections, you won't. And that was really interesting, Beth, and in how it exposed people's true feelings and their intent. Because if you're really posting it just to post it, then it would seem like that would not even matter. But people had feelings because it meant that nobody could see how many likes, shares, hearts, whatever they got. So they're trying that and they actually have expanded that uh, feature and they're testing it out to see if that will help with some of the dysregulation. And so that's also, in my opinion, that is their acceptance and recognition and acknowledgement that maybe that feature being public is not in the best interest of all of our, you know, stability, but you know, we'll see. That's very interesting. Um, what are some of the risks for really heavy social media consumption? Well, it's like anything, um, again, keeping in mind, reiterating, I have no problem with it using recreationally, or is just something that, you know, it's fine, but like anything, any kind. And so we all know what when we talk about addiction, I think people would be pretty familiar and certainly your audience with addiction and what that's about and how it's diagnosed and the symptoms and the criteria that you need. Uh, but there's also something that has come really into light in the last several years that are called process addictions. So process addictions are not substance-based. They're, you know, activities or, or things that are behaviors. So when I talk about that, we talk about things, the one that people really know, and it's actually in the DSM-5 is gambling. Um, shopping, people talk about things like this. So there are things people, so there's some people who even say that you can be addicted to exercise. So all of these things. So in my book, if you're really looking before you diagnose, what I look at is this, and I look at it with any kind of behavior, whether it's substance-based, whether it's process, I go in this order. So I look and I investigate with the people that I work with or, or someone who's wondering, does it impact your, and I go in this order, biological, psychological, sociological, occupational or academic, or environmental stability, opportunities, growth. So that's what I look at. And I, I try to see, and is, is it impacting anywhere where maybe it's impeding something 
in a way that is not really healthy. So in terms of social media, well, the first thing that we see, and certainly this is with uh, primarily uh, teenagers and young adults, is sleep, sleep hygiene. So if you're up all night and you're on social media or you have your device sitting there and you're, it's like a baby monitor and every time you, you have it set in your alerts that anytime someone posts or reposts that it alerts you. Uh, so sleep hygiene is something that we really look at. And then academic performance. So for example, or occupational, you know, um, there's also some studies being done with is social media impacting work productivity? Uh, uh, you know, in people who are in the workforce, but for you know younger adults who are in university or college or um, some kind of trade school or teens, certainly, um, if you're concentrating on your social media when you're either supposed to be in class or you're supposed to be doing your homework, uh, one of the things in all these studies are coming forward as well in terms of multitasking. So, you know, we used to believe that multitasking was something that could be done as long as you weren't trying to, you know, um, mow the front lawn, and then also try to, you know, do your homework. Obviously, that couldn't happen. Those are in two geographic different locations. But in terms of, uh, you know, young adults, kids, or even adults who, while they're supposed to be concentrating on work, an assignment, or homework, if they are really also having uh, an engagement in any way, or just even leaving the social media open, then of course, that could negatively impact it because your attention is not going to be focused. And uh, the other thing is that in terms of screens, so let's just, you know, assume and, and I think this is a relatively reasonable assumption that when anyone's working now, whether it be in the workplace or whether it be uh, for homework, we're using our laptops or, or a, a desktop, but mostly a laptop. So we talk about in terms of what's your primary screen. <laughs> and I throw this out a lot when I talk, and it also happens if you're watching something on, you know, a television screen, and you also have your device somewhere near you. But in terms of what you're asking, uh, what can it impact, or what are some of the things that could be negatively affected? If you have your laptop open and you have your other device, your portable device, like your your phone, uh, sitting next to you, now you're supposed to be doing a work assignment or you're supposed to be doing your homework, but you have your device sitting next to it. Now, what, what do you think is the primary screen? The phone. If you're watching something on a television uh, and you have your device next to you, the primary is the device. If you're doing your homework or you're at work or you're trying to do work and your laptop is open and your device sitting next to you, the primary is the device because it will steal your focus. It will take your focus, your conscious, it's there. So... Uh, that's another in, that's another piece. The other thing that I really care about is our connection with others. So we're spending so much of our time in something that we call absent presence. Absent presence means that you are there, but you're really not. You're more focused on the screen or the social media. And we see this all the time. I mean, I see people walking down the street, walking down staircases, crossing streets, or certainly when in workplaces and in academic environments. And as soon as they're able or the, the focus they're walking in there on their screens. But I also look at families. You know, you see this and we've all seen the imagery when an entire family is sitting around a table, even in a restaurant, and they're all looking down at their screens. And, you know, the kids are, are probably on social media uh, and checking that to make sure that they're not having missing out and not having FOMO about missing out on whatever is happening in that moment. But the parents are also doing it. So I also look at relationships with families and how the social media and, and certainly screens are dividing us and also looking in terms of relationships with others. So that comes to the, you know, the sociological aspect of it, where you're with your friends and you're all sitting around and you're not engaging, you know? And so how is that creating bonds and connection? Um, so when we look at what I talked about earlier, so the biological effects of it can be certainly sleep hygiene. There's other things that biologically we talked about, some of the neurology in the brain, some of the dopamine, cortisol, you know, the, the disruption of norepinephrine or serotonin, which keep us stable so we can be activated by social media. So that's the biological, the psychological base can be your self-esteem or your feelings of self-worth or loneliness, uh, you know, and sociological effects can be our disconnect and being an absent presence instead of present presence with other occupational and, and uh, academic. We already talked about how social media can impede or impact that. And then in the environmental piece is 
something different, but it pretty much encompasses everything when we're walking down the street and we're maybe, you know, putting ourselves in some sort of risk or in an environment that's not safe. Because also if you're walking or you're in an, an area or, you know, you're not paying attention, then the environment, because you're focused on social media and that's really important, you know, that's a risk factor as well. What are some of the red flags that we should be keeping out for clinically? Um, so what do we see in our practices? Because as you said, most people use social media. At what point does it kind of cross an invisible line uh, in your mind? And how do you, how do you assess that? Well, I'll tell you. And again, this is this is always kind of makes me laugh and not in a laughing way. It's kind of a Scooby-Doo. Uh, certainly if, for clinicians, if you're in session with a client and they take their phone or their device and they put it out and they're they're looking at their social media and they, I mean, in my program uh, at the teen center, the, the teens are not allowed to have their devices. They check them at the door, but in my private practice, they know what I do. There's a sign right there that says, be nice, turn off your device. It's right in front of them. And they put their device right next to it. And I look at them and kind of say, what? So I think a, a first sign would be if during your session with them, they cannot, they, they're not turning off their phone or you have to tell them to, but in terms of in general, um, I would look at, so what are some signs and signals? Um, certainly their use and usage. One of the things that I do, and I encourage clinicians to do this, and I, I tell them this. So there's a real easy, and when I say kitchen table, you know, maybe that's an antiquated phrase, but um, it's kitchen table, just kind of exercise. So there is a, a program and, and all Apple devices, all Apple phones have this, and you can also have it on uh, other devices like laptops and things like that. There is a, uh, a uh, an application that some of your people may have heard of, some of your audience, and some may not, uh, and it's called Screen Time. Now, there's a lot of filters out there. There's a lot of monitors, but Screen Time is included with this device and with this with uh, the Apple products. So, one of the things that I tell clinicians and I tell my clients to do, and I tell adults to do this, and I tell my friends to do this, and I do it. You don't have to tell anybody. You can just look at it. It might just be something that is the kids would say, oh, you know, can, you can get woke. And it it's about your use and utilization. So the first step is very gently suggest or, you know, ask them if they would like some help with this. Look at that app. It's already there. Just open it up. And what screen time does is screen time is very comprehensive and it tells you how much time you've spent on your device. And more importantly, where you've spent that time. And there's all kinds of graphs. And I'm kind of a stats kind of nerdy geek like that. So I love that kind of stuff. I don't know if that's interesting to others. But if, you know, it really, it, the visuals of it are actually pretty cool. So what it does is it will tell you. It will say, okay, and it, tell, it goes by day. You can put it by hour. And it will let you know how much time you're spending on that device and where. So what apps are you using, you know, and, and I find it very valuable just as a first step, because I will tell you, Beth, I can't even tell you how many times that I've suggested this or done it with my clients or my friends. There's shock. They have no idea. But what they don't know is that, of course, we were, you know, as I say, if you're, if it's free, you're the product and their goal is to keep us on those screens as much as possible. And so, you know, we might not even know. And it's the most amazing thing. I mean, these little devices, they're unbelievable. I mean, there's everything in there. It's its the most incredible, you know, uh, tool ever. And I, I kind of joke, I say that, um, you know, I think, and this is just my personal opinion, that the internet is the most incredible invention that man, man has ever created. Sorry, Wheel, you had a really good role, but I think that you have now moved to the silver platform because I really do believe, and it's so good and there's so many things and it doesn't matter because it's here to stay and it's only gonna get you know more comprehensive and our, our lifestyles and everything we use and use are gonna be digitally driven or connected or controlled. Um, augmented reality and virtual reality and artificial intelligence, they're all coming. So again, I'm looking at healthy usage. So this screen time app, well, just tell you. And what you want to do with that is up to you. But I really encourage, and there's similar ones on other uh, devices and other products of other companies, or you can actually migrate this over um, to it. But I just say, look at it. 
And if you see somewhere where you're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea I was spending that much time on YouTube. I had no idea I was spending that much time on Insta or Snap or whatever the next new, you know, TikTok, whatever the next new platform is, Discord, um, these social media, there's so many of them. It might just be interesting to you. So that's really the first step. And, you know, so that would be uh, something that I think is just information. And then if you find that there is somewhere where you might say, mm, you can control, you can put in filters, they can be self-directed, you can have a friend do it. I do it a lot of times for my teens in the in my program or for my clients. I actually am right now, and I will tell you that one of my friends has asked me to be the administrator because they felt like they were spending too much time on Instagram. And so I'm trying to help them. It's just a friend of mine, but they know what I do. So I am the administrator and have set uh, filters and timers on how much time they can spend on that platform. But if you're just using it reasonably or it's recreational, then there's not a problem, but it will also tell you exactly because there may be some other um, platforms or applications or sites that you're looking at and you say, oh, I had no idea I was spending that much time on Reddit. It sounds like it's kind of a, a nebulous line to draw across a board that I know it's what you're not saying is, oh, anything more than two hours a day is problematic. I would, no, I always get that question. It's different for everybody. So to say a, a line of how much time is okay to be spending on social media. It's so individualized. But I will say, if you're spending, and you you gave a number that I'm pretty confident, and again, my opinion, I'm pretty confident on this one, so thank you. If you're spending two hours a day or more on social media, and again, the Screen Time app will tell you, yeah, I would wanna look at mm, some more. I would wanna investigate that further. And I would also want to look at, you know, what what has it replaced? Because that's the other thing I look at. And when any kind of device use or utilization, there's nothing wrong with it. But um, when we find that other things are being lost or, you know, they're not doing the kind of things they used to do activities, you know, get outside, look around, you know, look up at the sky, stop trying to take pictures and then post them to try to get responses. But, uh, you know, I look at their other activities. A lot of times what I'll do is I'll have a client. We do a day. And we'll do, we'll take a little like, you know, calendar kind of thing. And we just go through the day and we look at what are they doing? Where are they spending their time? And let's look at the blocks of time. And, you know, we can say, okay, well, I'm at evening after your school, I'm going on social media. But the problem with social media is that people who use it, it's just like we end up drawing a whole line because it's throughout the whole day. They're just always focused on it. Uh, and so the piece of how much, how long you should spend on social media, well, and we said two hours, that would, to me, I would want to know why I would want to see, because everything we do, we get something out of. And that's just whether it's autonomic things of waking up and going to school or going to work, brushing our teeth, eating, you know, engaging with friends, every single thing we do, even if we don't realize it, we do it because we get something out of it, even on maybe just a cellular level, or maybe on a, another level, we're looking for something, you know, that we need for our emotional um, status. Why social media? So I also talk with my clients and we were really trying to get honest about this. What are you getting out of it? What do you need it for? What are the gains? What are the risks? The other thing that when you asked about risks, of course, is that you might not know who the people are. A lot of these people, especially people who use some of the platforms uh, that have followers. So you want to be careful about who you allow in to your circle and what kind of information you're disclosing. You know, doctors used to cut out their own addresses in magazines in their waiting rooms for patients whose maybe babies they delivered. So when we used to go to waiting rooms and there were magazines, the, the uh, address would be cut out. And now we are putting everything out there on social media. And that can be dangerous as well. And I talk about the risks of that. What we decided to do and what I, I did with my committee is we wrote the APA uh, Division 3612 recommended guidelines for social engagement for professionals, including clinicians and educators, because sometimes as clinicians and educators and people, even professionals, we're not really mindful of what we're posting. And I can't even tell you how many times I've been called to try to help someone repair Maybe they had a social media faux pas. There's a lot of stories about um, the people who shared with me and that I've tried to help them about um, putting things out there and self-disclosing on social media that maybe has not had a great outcome. And so when you're talking about risks, and it's also for younger people and adults and just all of us in general, when we think about the amount 
of disclosure that sometimes we provide through social media. And there's some ways that some people who might not have the best agendas, so it's called catfishing, or leverage that information in a way that I, you know, we're all pretty unfortunately familiar with now, and it can manifest in a variety of ways. I think you bring up an important point about um, just ourselves as professionals, how we are interacting on social media. And so it's not like this phenomenon that's just affecting that client or that particular demographic. It's something that most of us are involved in anyway and have a professional relationship with uh, and need to, to consider the impact. Um, in terms of, so you, you named some of the risk factors and it sounds like in a lot of ways, it's like any other problematic behavior, if you will, of how much it's it's interfering in the person's functioning. So, you know, like you didn't give a, a direct answer, you know, only when I pushed you about how, how long um, is, you know, how much is too much. But the idea that we need to be looking at the biological, psychological, sociological, and academic or occupational impact of their social media use Sure. When you as a clinician think that somebody has a relationship with social media that is detrimental to them, how do you bring that up and how do you recommend clinicians kind of start that conversation? Because I know I've worked with clients that any suggestion of like them putting their phone down is like, yeah. uh-uh, that, that can't happen. It needs to be like the terror. Beth, you just answered the question. I would say that the resistance to, you know, being present with you might be an indicator that they might at least want to talk about it. And I have to be fair here because most people, uh, you know, I'm not altogether unknown and anyone who seeks me out kind of knows what I do, but I told you they'll still do it in, in sessions with me. They'll just put the device out, but here's, here's what I'll suggest to you. And again, um, it's on a case by case basis, but I talk about it and I'll frame it back into my work because I'm also a doctor, doctoral addictions counselor, and that's really where I started. Um, so I've worked with addiction for almost 20 years. And I'm also in recovery myself, which I have no problem disclosing, but it doesn't matter that I, even if I didn't, because again, I'm easily discoverable as we all are. And so anything we put out there is archived forever. So it's not too hard to, you know, to see, but I, I'm very, very grateful for my, um, my recovery experience. So I talk about it the same way I deal with those who I work with who have substance issues. Those who may or may not have a problem or those who are, you know, suggest they have a problem, they don't fight for their right to party. So if you're really being told, can we at least talk about this and you're resistant and you don't even want to have a conversation about it or while you're holding your device and you're maybe posting, oh my gosh, my therapist thinks I have a problem with social media, ha ha, LOL, and post that on Insta and everyone, you know. So I have no problem, but this would be, you know, something because, again, I have to be because I am a researcher and I have to look at all the variables and I may be an outlier because everyone kind of knows what I do. And if they come to me, they know this is my wheelhouse. But I talk, again, I've trained clinicians, I train educators. Um, I don't think that anybody in, you know, certainly in in our worlds uh, who seeks out or is in uh, the proximity IRL uh, in real life of someone who is a clinician or practitioner, um, if they're not open to talking about it, we all know that this is the thing. I mean, when I was talking about environmental factors, all you got to do is walk outside. And I'm telling you, I just saw today when I was leaving my office, I walked outside and I saw people crossing the street on Wilshire Boulevard, which your listeners would know, it's pretty busy, looking down at their phone. And I'm thinking, um, but it's also in terms of broaching the conversation. You know, it depends on your style. Every clinician and facilitator and practitioner has different styles. So depending on your style, I think that to just talk about it um, and just say, hey, you know, it's part maybe of when you do your biopsychosocial in the beginning, I include it. And, you know, most practitioners now that I know, have, and they've asked me because I've written instruments of assessment for it. But I think that if you're looking at the basic, the, the dimensions and your, your audience probably know what that means. When you're looking across and you're doing your first initial assessment, or you're starting to create the therapeutic alliance with your client, I think that honestly, and again, my opinion in 2019, if you don't have some sort of assessment on their device use, the same as you have on their hygiene, on their sleep hygiene, on their mental state, on their psychomotor control, on their family history. On the, I think if you don't have that or other relationships, I just think that it should be de-rigor protocol and we need to accept that. And maybe there's no problem. 
like in other, but you know, anyone who kind of, and I don't know, and I'm, I'm not saying that that has to be a part of an assessment, but you know, when you're first working with a client, usually we want to know their story and we, we want to get information. So the same as you ask things, you know, I work with clients who primary mental health, but I still ask them about any kind of substance experience, right? And sometimes I just write NA across it. So in our world today, because we know that it can be so affecting to at least do a little bit of assessment about their uh, device use or their device engagement. Because the other thing, and I, I talked about it briefly, and it's really a whole other um, topic, uh, and it's my research right now, is that if a client, and I tell, I, I just, I was, I was so grateful I was asked, and I, I did a presentation uh, for clinicians at UCLA in October, and I talk about this when I have the audience that is clinicians, and often if it's parents and it feels right, I have to tell them. I say, look, if you have gone through everything and you cannot identify a variable that is suddenly, you know, you can correlate to this significant change you've seen in your kid or your partner or someone you're concerned about, I say to them, look, you, you, you can't find it. You've ruled out everything. Please gently or ask for help or somehow don't underestimate that there might be some sort of, you know, dysregulation due to either their social media or cyberbullying. And you have to be very careful with it. But it is so rampant and it is can be so subtle. And again, it's how I got into all of this. And I've talked to so many clinicians when I say that and they say, oh my goodness. So they'll call me later and they say, Don, we couldn't find out. There was such a significant change in my daughter. Um, you know, we couldn't, she was, became so isolatory and something was wrong and we didn't know what it was and our, our shit, everything her. And I say, okay, well, and one of the things for that, and this is when you were asking for identification, identification of um, symptom, symptoms, um, if there's a significant change, but also if you see a change in friend groups, and we talk about that also in lots of forms of addiction, or if they don't engage with their friend groups anymore. Um, and there, something has changed. So, you know, that's really a good indicator of maybe something else is going on and that could be a piece. And it, it's just awful. And I feel for the kids because, you know, they're sitting there at night or wherever they are in their room and they're, you know, higher, uh, canvassing their social media and they're looking, looking, and then something happens and they get torpedoed digitally out of the blue. There's something called the online disinhibition effect. And I talked about it a lot in my first research study because my first research study was an investigation of face-to-face -face versus online communities. And, you know, and I, I learned that, you know, face-to-face -face is, is obviously preferred, but online communities, if they're blended and if they can be very helpful as well in a lot of ways. But in terms of uh, what I was saying, the online disinhibition effect, what it means, and, you know, whenever I talk about this, most people say, oh, yeah, I, I've either seen it. Um, I asked, uh, and I do this a lot, I asked uh, last week in my healthy device management group at my teen center, I said, you don't have to tell me. But please, if you feel comfortable, if you have, if you have uh, participated, been the victim of, or observed any form of cyberbullying, please raise your hand. Every kid in the room did. And I've done this several times, and I've done it with adults. Everybody raises their hand if they're honest. So the online disinhibition effect means that we will say and do things online behind the cloak and the protection of veiled uh, digitally mediated communication that we would never say or do in real life. And so in terms of that, um, you know, and I've, I just had this yesterday, I was doing an assessment uh, for uh, a teen who's, you know, may join our program and the parents brought her and the parents have told me there was a profound change they don't know what it is something their daughter is a different person and they don't know what it is and they've checked everything and they've gone to doctor and nothing and she was very shut down well it was kind of amazing and phenomenal and i just get goosebumps when i think about it because when i do assessments we ask the parents to leave the room and we try to talk to the kid and the kid knew what i did and i talked about it gently and the kid actually admitted to me that all of this was caused and she called them the Regina Georges, which is a reference to a character in Mean Girls. She had had a situation where she had been cyberbullied and everyone sided with these this group of girls and she was ousted from her clique and her squad. And the parents were looking for all kinds of other things and, you know, looking, they thought she was on drugs. She was not. She was just had, she was in an academic environment where suddenly she was an outcast.
Now, the perception also in cyberbullying, even though it's real or perceived, everything that, you know, is perception is everything, right? So, and I hear this a lot with that. Um, you know, when we were bullied in the past and I had my own experiences in middle school, don't ever want to go back there. But um, the perception was that nobody knew but the people involved. The perception of teens and even adults and professionals and, and you know, parents who've called me or asked me about this, the perception is that everyone saw it, which can you imagine what that does to your head? Well, I can, I, I want to point out one of the things you said that I think was really powerful, um, which was the use of the word uh, affect, not effect, but affect, and how social media has such a profound um, effect on affect and what you're talking about in just mental wellness and feeling good about ourselves with these different uh, things going on, like uh, cyberbullying or kind of searching for a certain number of likes where, where then we feel like, okay, I, I can put my phone down and actually like re-engage with my family. I've, I've gotten this proverbial pat on my back and I feel okay now. It's such a profound thing. Um, with the time we have left today, now that we've talked kind of about what, what to look for, um, what, what we should know in terms of the research and, and how the impact um, of social media can play out with mental health conditions, what are some of the treatment options that providers should be reaching for when they have a client that has a really uh, detrimental relationship with social media? Sure. Well, the first thing, and I tell this to parents and clinicians also, is model behavior, right? So modeling behavior, because I'm working on a research study right now that um, I'm investigating, are we going to be seeing a new form of I don't know. I hope it's not true, but uh, insecure attachment that's device rid, uh, driven, meaning that uh, the the parent or the caregiver is there, but they're on their screen. For clinicians, certainly, and I know you would find this impossible. Also for educators, because I hear these stories. Certainly, you need to model behavior. So don't you know? I tell people when you're with someone, be in present presence. Turn off your device and store it away, because if that is on the table, then it's part of the conversation. And what the message is to the other person is that I'm interested and I'm here with you, but if a better bid comes along, I'm going to take it. In real life, it manifests. And if anyone's ever experienced when they're talking to someone at a party or an event and you see the person looking over their shoulder and that doesn't make you feel great. But in terms of treatment, if it is profound, then one of the things that you can do, and there's a few different things. The first thing is, are they willing to go through? Because now every kid wants to be, you know, an influencer and a SoundCloud rapper, but okay, I get it. But I go through their 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 people. You know, we go through their their social media. Who are these people safe? Um, certainly, you can put limits on it. Or, what if you just? I know it's crazy. What if you just took a little detox off of it? And I talk about this with all kinds of digital things. You know, in the digital world, the good news. This is a promise. I don't make a lot of promises, but I promise this, and I say this all the time. You know, you're going to miss out. You're going to FOMO about it. You're going to fear of missing out on it. The good news is no matter what it is, I don't care if it's digital streaming or, or, you know, Snap or anything, everything will still be there. It is the most incredible digital form game of jump rope. You can go off and you can give yourself a break and just see what happens. Nothing will disappear. It will all be discoverable forever. It's being beat out into space. Can't imagine if there's life on other planets, what they think of us seeing some of this stuff when they see it. But I tell them, look, are you willing to take a break? Even one day. Are you willing to not be on social media? If you can't, then again, that would be an indicator that well, maybe we want to look at this. But really, just taking a little, having a little digital diet, so to speak, or uh, and just going off of it, um, that's a gentle way to start. Seeing if they'll do it for an afternoon, will they do it for a week? Knowing that they can jump right back in and everything will be there. Um, you know, they won't have missed anything, which does not happen in real life. And I say to them, look, just give me a chance. Just do it for. An afternoon or a Saturday, because the things that are online and these digital uh, platforms and social media, they will always be there. You can always go back and look. Um, they say you can't with Snapchat. I'm like, okay, there's there's a lot, there's a lot of, of fodder. You, the, you don't miss anything. In real life, that's not true. Moments come and go. And you could miss out on something that is the memory or the person that you could connect with that would impact positively your lifetime. So in terms of that, um, the treatment for it, it depends if there's really a significant problem with social media, then absolutely. And I've done it with my clients and they don't like it. I say, look, you need to take a break and it can be for amounts of time, depending on the significance of it. But that's really with social media. The practice of good digital citizenship is a no brainer. That just means do not 
you know, be, be kind on, you know, be kind. And I say to them, you know, there's a very fairy, very, um, uh, there's a roomy, uh, uh, there's a roomy quote that I really love. And I say, look, before you post anything on social media, I ask, can you just do this? Can you do, can you say, can it pass through the three gates of roomy? Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? So the same way that we're taught how to be good citizens of the world, I say on social media, this, these are the filters. When you're going to post something or when you're going to write something, is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? But uh, in terms of the treatment of it, what I find, Beth, is that once, if we can get them off the social media and we find what the unmet need is or what they got out of it, that's awesome because then usually and invariably it exposes some of the other psychological, emotional, mental health, some of the other things, relational, esteem, ego, we start to see because uh, those come out. And then we can work on those and help them become stronger, build their ego, build their sense of self-construct and identity. Because the other thing that social media is doing, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, is that we are um, becoming, our self-identity construct is being um, developed and maybe not authentically by the reactions and responses. Um, there's something that uh, the sociologist who I love from the early 1900s named Cooley, he called about the mirror effect. And I used it a lot in my dissertation because I couldn't believe he wrote this about just relationships and the mirror effect and how we reflect back and what we become and how we react and respond is reflected by the reactions and responses we get from others. It dovetails so perfectly into social media because we are changing and reacting and responding and becoming often based on the reactions responses of our engagement with social media. It sounds like in in the way you're describing it, it's on us as providers to be able to clearly assess and speak openly with clients about this. But also it sounds like a lot of psychoeducation and what I will call like kind of gentle confrontation of like, let me draw your attention to, you know, can I, can I give you some feedback and kind of bringing it into the room and addressing it head on. And, and then if, if it is really severe, referring to a more, um, a more formal program where they can attend services that are just primarily geared at that. Yeah, it's why I wanted to do the outpatient program that was mental health and have my piece in it. Because when I used to do my own boot camps, little pop-ups, um, once we, if we could convince them to get off social media or whatever, the gaming, whatever it was, um, everything else started to be exposed. And then I had to refer them out to a variety of different appropriate resources, clinicians and practitioners. So when I was um, you know, able to create this program and bring my um, boot camp in it, I have an entire comprehensive cadre of incredible clinicians to work on it. But I'll just say what you you said earlier, um, you know, the first indicator, if someone is resistant to even taking a break from social media, again, the gentle confrontation, as you said, well, let's talk about why. I mean, there's no judgment, just why. And that can probably lead to a conversation of that could be helpful because if they really aren't willing to do it, then it's obviously more important. It's like, but it's also like when we deal with substances, you know, you take away the substance, it's called dual diagnosis. So you take away the substance and then suddenly what they were using it for and what it did for them, self-medication, coping mechanism, you know, and it's the same thing with social media and a lot of the platforms that, you know, are supported by devices, but really what, what is coming out. But if they really don't want to even talk about it, or they're just so resistant, then you talk about, okay, well, I'm, that's cool. But so what is what do you get out of it? How do you enjoy it? You know, let them inform you of how they engage and what they do and what they feel about it. And what I've found very often is as they start talking about it, there's a moment when they realize, oh, yeah. And then I talked about, have you observed anything or have you ever had an awkward moment or an awkward post? Or have you ever had like, you know, the digital walk of shame where you posted something that you thought was a good idea at 1 a.m. and then the next day you went, oh. So, you know, getting them to talk about it. And what I find is if they talk about it gently and I don't challenge, then they walk themselves into it and they go, oh, yeah, you know, there was that one time or, you know, yeah, that didn't make me feel, you know. <laughs> And then I say to them, how many posts you got working right now that you're waiting and you can't wait to get out of this office because you can't wait to walk out of here, wait till I'm not looking, turn on your device and check how, you know, with your action response. I always get a laugh. Thank you, Don, for coming and sharing your expertise with us. Um, how can people uh, learn more about your work and get in touch with you if they'd like to? 
<laughs> well, I've learned this and, you know, I'm, I guess I'm, a, I'm part of it. So I'm easily discoverable as most of us are, you know, someone's not discoverable on uh, any kind of uh, internet Google search. Um, I either say Bravo or Hmm. So um, I'm easily discoverable, or you can find me at Resolutions Teen Center. Um, the website address is www.resolutionsteen.com. Um, and so you can uh, find me. My email is don at resolutionstreatment.com, R-E-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S. T-R-E-A-T-M-E-N-T.com. Um, so, you know, if you want some help or you want to talk, I'm always available. And I'm also always open to coming and speaking to schools. I do it pro bono or organizations. You know, I, I, I really would like um, to support. And uh, so that's how you can find me. Thank you. I appreciate that. And for our listeners that want to learn more about some of the things you've discussed today, in addition to the APA Technology uh, Committee, are there other websites or resources that you really recommend as being a good source? Sure, of course. And I really uh, want to be legitimate. So the National Institutes of Health, the Center for Disease Control, YouGov, these are all research-based and legitimate organizations. So I would stick to those. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Don. We really appreciate you being here and, and sharing on a topic that I think is pretty intimate for all of us on one wow. level or another. Thank you again. Take care. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.